Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Who can forget Martin Shkreli, who became one of America's favorite villains when he hiked the price of Daraprim, a drug that people desperately need in order to live, by 5,000%. After that came Valiant, the once high-flying pharmaceutical company that ran the same sort of racket. Those two scandals put the spotlight on an increasingly big and political problem in the United States, the alarmingly high cost of pharmaceuticals. Americans spend more on our prescriptions than anyone else in the world, two to four times as much for some commonly used drugs, according to J.P. Morgan. The average American spends over $1,000 a year on medication, an inflation-adjusted increase of 11-fold since 1960, according to The Atlantic. Spoiler alert, this is not as one might logically assume because we are getting sicker. Even President Trump is taking this on. About a year ago, Trump promised, you'll be seeing drug prices falling very substantially in the not-too-distant future, and it's going to be beautiful. The beauty hasn't quite manifested itself yet, but that's another story. The market for pharmaceuticals is by no means a free one. Everything about it is shaped by laws, and patent laws are the reason that prices in the United States are so much higher than in the rest of the world. Here's how it works. Drug companies get legal protections to make huge profits for a few years, to reward the risk of investment in clinical trials. The offset is supposed to be the generic drug industry, which are essentially cheaper copies of brand name pharmaceuticals. The artificial monopoly period ends after seven years. Generic manufacturers move in and create supposedly identical products, thereby making important drugs available at reasonable costs to most Americans. Case in point, Pfizer's cholesterol-reducing drug Lipitor was one of the best-selling drugs of all time. Then it went generic in 2011 and the price plummeted. In the case of your average person struggling with high cholesterol, this is really good news. According to The Atlantic, monopoly expirations have saved buyers about $65 billion over the past five years. The generic market accounts for an ever greater percentage of prescriptions, and the Trump administration and the Obama administration before that have made continued efforts to expand its share. In other words, without generic drugs, drug prices would not just be a problem, but for some people, literally a killer. Which is why Catherine Eban's new book, Bottle of Lies, is so frightening. Because as her book tells it, we cannot trust generic drugs, the very thing that is making our medicines at least semi-affordable. Her book, in a sense, is a story of globalization, because much of the manufacturing of these drugs is now done in India and China, 
Our regulatory system is utterly unable to police global manufacturing. Yet Eben says that in the United States, imports from India now make up 40% of all generics used. And 80% of the active ingredients used in both generic and brand name medications come from India and China. Her book is also the incredibly gripping story of a whistleblower who worked at one of India's largest generic drug manufacturers called Rambaxi Laboratories. She writes that before he'd arrived at Rambaxi, he assumed that a pill was a pill, manufactured identically for all the regions of the world. So did I until I read Catherine's book. Catherine is a longtime investigative reporter who focuses on public health and homeland security. She's written for Fortune, Vanity Fair, and many other places. We first met years ago at Fortune and bonded over the fact that we both have two daughters and large dogs, and I'm delighted to have her here today. We have to begin with Gandhi. What's his connection to the generic drug industry? It was in World War II, and the Indians were trying to gain their freedom from the British, and they needed pharmaceuticals for the Indian army, and the British couldn't supply them anymore because supplies from Europe had collapsed. So Gandhi had actually gone to a fellow named Hamid, who ran a company called Sipla, and said to him, you'll be helping the resistance campaign against the British and our freedom if you can step up production of pharmaceuticals for the Indian army. He did. Sipla became the largest manufacturer of active ingredients in India. The Indians, of course, won their freedom from the British and so began uh, the golden age of Indian pharma. And then there's this other moment that gives the Indian generic drug manufacturing industry huge legitimacy, and that's Bill Clinton in the battle over AIDS drugs, right? Hamid's son, Yusuf Hamid, known as Yuku, took over the operations of CIPLA and was just appalled by the AIDS epidemic and the deaths of thousands and thousands of Africans. Yuku Hamid was contacted by activists in the West who asked him, could he manufacture the HIV AIDS cocktail more cheaply? And he ultimately put forth the number of a dollar a day. Which was a stunning decrease from where the drug was priced, right? Right. A stunning decrease. And that really was a game changer. So ultimately, the brand name companies previously had refused to waive their patents, now agreed to waive their patents. But Bill Clinton then came forward through his foundation and got the Indian industry to agree to drop the prices even further to 38 cents a day and got African governments organized to buy in bulk. And so Indian pharma was really viewed as the savior of so many AIDS patients around the world. I think you write in your book, which I love, if Indians could make affordable medicine good enough to be approved by American regulators, then the drugs were good enough for Americans to take too. So it's this pivotal moment. Absolutely. The, I mean, the AIDS crisis really did it because in order to make sure that U.S. taxpayers, we were paying for the drugs, were paying for good quality drugs, there was a demand for FDA approval of them and if they were good enough to be approved by our own regulators, then they were good enough for Americans to take to. Let's talk a little bit about the FDA and this role that the FDA plays in regulating drugs and the role that FDA inspectors play. I found those people fascinating characters in your book. Any plant anywhere in the world that exports to the U.S. is required to undergo FDA inspection and has to meet 
standards called current good manufacturing practices. And those stipulate all of the controls, the transparency, and the documentation requirements for manufacturing plants. They're really very detailed standards. And those plants are subject to inspection by FDA investigators. So those are the people who come in and ensure that the plants are in compliance and operating in a state of control. And how did you start getting to know these people? As I was reporting, I became aware of the incredible inspections of Peter Baker. He is a young FDA investigator who had become famous or notorious really around the world because he scared people. He scared the industry. And he had forged a really novel system of inspection, which is instead of walking around the manufacturing floor and looking at paper records or requesting documentation, he started going into the computer systems of these manufacturing plants and looking at the testing data in those plants. And this was new. This wasn't something the FDA had been doing before. Right. As, as, that seems shocking. Yeah. As one person had said to me, you know, they're using their thinking from the early 2000s to be inspecting plants in 2015. I mean, it was just this idea that if you print something out and you have data printed out, that that's the only documentation that exists. Whereas, of course, inside of the computer systems, anything is really possible. You say that this book began in particular because of a puzzle you couldn't solve. Explain that. It was 2008, and I got a call from a radio show host named Joe Graydon, who hosts a show called The People's Pharmacy. He had been hearing from listeners who had been switched from brand drugs to generics and had symptoms suddenly that were really troubling or they were stable and then they weren't stable anymore. And what, what got him about it, and he's a pharmacologist by training, is that the complaints were very similar. And even centered around certain drugs, drugs with time release mechanisms. He thought it was very serious what he was hearing. So he took these complaints to the FDA and officials there basically told him, we think it's psychosomatic, it's in their heads, because once they're switched to a new drug, the color changes, the shape changes. All those crazy patients. All those crazy patients. That didn't sound right to him. And so at the point that he called me in 2008, he basically said, I think we need somebody with investigative firepower, as he put it, to look into this. And he asked me this question, what is wrong with the drugs? So I began looking into it and I started where he pointed me with the patients. So I interviewed patients. I interviewed doctors. You know, it was easy to document what he had been listening to, which is patients who had been sent on crazy medical odysseys because they had these symptoms only to realize, you know, after nobody could help them that, wait a second, the symptoms started right after they were switched to a generic. And then I found doctors who were really concerned, particularly who prescribe what are called narrow therapeutic index drugs. So these are drugs that require very precise dosing. And they could see that these medication switches were sent to the pharmacy, were switched from brand to generic or from generic to generic. They could see that there was really a problem there, but of course they didn't know why. And these are not doctors anywhere. These were some of the nation's most prestigious healthcare organizations. Yeah. So. These are serious doctors treating seriously ill patients 
who were concerned. I really recognized as I was reporting this article, my first one ran in Self Magazine, it was very unsatisfying because even if I prove, yep, patients are sick, yep, doctors are puzzled, it doesn't answer this fundamental question of what is wrong with the drugs. So as I was reporting that article, I learned about a company I'd never heard of before called Rambaxi. And this is India's largest drug company. In India, it was a household name. Everybody knew Rambaxi. It was a source of great national pride and had been one of the first multinational companies. And so I found out that the FDA was investigating this company for possible data fraud. Which sounds somewhat benign on the surface, data fraud, but it's not at all. Right. I was about to learn a whole lot about data fraud. But what really moved things forward is that after my self-article ran, I was contacted by a whistleblower who identified himself under the name $4 Refill. So $4 Refill is- That's quite a name. It's what you pay if you fill a generic prescription at Walmart. It's like the cheap refill that we're all generally happy to get. And I got into a dialogue with him. And he really began pointing me thousands of miles away to the manufacturing plants where these drugs are made and basically opened my eyes to a world where companies wanted to make the cheapest drugs possible and sell them at the highest possible price. I was thinking about this parallel to the Theranos story because one of the Theranos whistleblowers talks about the carpeted world of executives where everything looks beautiful and the tiled world, this frantic, ugly world where all the shenanigans are going on. And I was thinking that's a great analogy for your book as well, because you have the carpeted world of the generic drug industry and all the good it's doing and the gleaming surfaces of it. And then this crazy mess underneath it crazy mess. Absolutely a crazy mess. I delved into the company of Rambaxi and it was a staggering picture. There was a whistleblower named Dinesh Thakur and he had been a young information architect at Bristol Myers Squibb and his specialty was managing large data sets. And he was hired by Rambaxi to come and track their burgeoning pipeline all across the world. So he moved his whole family to Gurgaon in 2003, and he hired a team at Rambaxi. And, you know, it was a strange corporate environment. There were fistfights in the executive boardroom. There were drug ingredients next to the half and half in the employee fridge. There were chain-smoking medical directors. I mean, it's just total contrast to the buttoned-up Bristol-Myers Squibb world he'd come from. Complete contrast. But he took that as a sign that his services were needed at Rambaxi. And then the first boss who brought him in left abruptly under somewhat strange circumstances. And about four weeks after his next boss came in, recruited from England, from GlaxoSmithKline, a lovely fellow named Dr. Raj Kumar, excellent, impeccable reputation. Uh, Kumar asks him to come by his office very early one morning and says to him, we're in big trouble. And there had been a contract research organization that had tested Rambaxi's drugs. And regulators had gone into that testing company and found fraud. And they were, as a result, concerned about the quality of Rambaxi's drugs. 
And this opens the proverbial can of worms. Kumar gives him an assignment. He says, I want you to look into Rambaxi's regulatory filings around the world, which is basically all of the data that we've given regulators to show them that our drugs are clinically, therapeutically equivalent and make sure that the data is legitimate. So Tucker works around the clock with his team and basically uncovers Rambaxi's dark secret, which is that they have fabricated the data of over 200 drug products in more than 40 countries around the world. Talk a little bit about the culture of Rambaxi such that people didn't speak up, that this was the way things were done. This was a company that was focused on profit before all else. Their goal was to get to a billion dollars in U.S. sales within a short period of time, and they named it their Garuda vision, which is after a soaring Indian eagle. And they had posters up on the walls of the office reminding employees of that goal. So there were incentives in the generic drug world that basically prompted companies to be as quick to market as possible in order to realize more profit. That's because then they get exclusivity on their drug so they can price the generic drug less than the brand name, but higher than they'll be able to once the frantic generic competition begins, right? So they've right. got this brief shining window to make money if they can get there first. Right. So the incentive is called first to file. And basically, if they're first through the door with their FDA application and that gets approved, as you said, they get six months exclusivity before generic competitors come in. The rush to be first was so intense that it had led generic drug executives to camp out in the FDA parking lot. They slept in limos and stretch limos. They pitched tents. They rotated throughout the night. Fist fights broke out in the parking lot, all to be first through the door. <laughs> I want to go back to this character of Takur for a little bit. Help me understand his character because he becomes a whistleblower. And what is it about him that makes him into a whistleblower? He couldn't let things go. He couldn't just say it was somebody else's problem. He lay awake after he was forced out of the company. He lay awake night after night and he had these data sets in his head. He knew the quality of the drugs. He knew they were poor and he knew that the uh, patients in Africa were getting the worst of the company's drugs. The drugs were no good. They would degrade in hot temperatures. Pause on this dual system because mm -hmm. as bad as the manufacturing is, you note in your book that there's also this system in place where markets like the U.S., for whatever the problems in the U.S., were actually getting the better quality drugs. And there really is this better products for the rich, worse products for the poor dynamic taking place too, which is really heartbreaking. This is a secret, essentially a secret within the generic drug industry which is called dual track production. It's essentially, as you say, they make drugs of different quality for different markets, depending on the vigilance of the regulators. So in the least regulated markets, they will send their worst drugs. And essentially they never have to discard failing drugs because there's always a market to send them to. It's incredibly depressing. So come, come back to the story of Ranbaxy and generic Lipitor, because you have these two events hurtling toward each other, and it seems inconceivable that the two come to pass at the same time, and yet they do. You have the companies rush to be the first to make generic Lipitor, and then you've got this criminal investigation of its shoddy manufacturing practices. And you would think that the second would preclude the, the, the first? Right. So in 2005, 
Tucker no longer able to stand the thoughts he's having about these drugs, reaches out to regulators around the world under a pseudonym. And really the only regulator who contacts him back is the FDA. The only one who gets back to him. Nobody cares. Nobody seems to care. But he finally wrote directly to the commissioner of the FDA and pleaded with him to put a stop to what he called a crime. That got him in dialogue with FDA regulators. They begin to investigate his claims. And of course, he has documentation. So they believe him. And they begin a criminal investigation of Rambaxi. At the same time that they're doing that, they're approving Rambaxi's drugs. And looming on the horizon is the launch of generic Lipitor. How can these things be happening at the same time? How can they be approving Ranbaxy's drugs and not pulling all of Ranbaxy's drugs from the, from the market and yet be getting this incredibly devastating information from a whistleblower who's telling them that everything is essentially a fraud? This is just the greatest question. And after 10 years of investigating this, I'm not sure that I have a good answer for it, except that they somehow convinced themselves that the approvals had to go forward, that they were trying to do due diligence. If there wasn't a specific smoking gun in the application of a specific drug that maybe it was okay to take, I, it was a kind of labyrinthine group Miasma. think exercise, which nobody can really understand because it's not understandable. How much does the pressure for lower drug prices, because of our issues in America with high pharmaceutical prices, how much does the pressure to have to, to have generic drugs available contribute to something like that happening? I think probably a lot. I think they're under tremendous pressure from Congress to approve more generics more quickly. There's also drug shortages. So there's not enough low-cost drugs. And between those two things and the sense that somehow Rambaxi being this enormous company was just too big to fail. And so they just, the approvals kept coming. And it really came to a head with the approval of generic Lipitor, which is the regulators were sort of staring down the barrel of this giant decision because of a strange little legal provision. If they did not approve Rambaxi's drug, then they were afraid that Rambaxi could park its exclusivity and no other manufacturer and there wouldn't could be generic come in. at all. So wow. they felt they had to approve Rambaxi's drug, but they had to go through the steps of approval. So they rushed a pre-approval inspection at one of Rambaxi's plants in India, and they just found a disaster. There was a shredder on the factory floor where they were destroying shredders, documents. And shredders are never good in business stories, right? Shredders the stories are, of business gone wrong once you see the shredder. <laughs> Absolutely. It's like the gun on the mantelpiece, you know? <laughs> the shredder on the factory for, floor is what you would call a clue. So the inspector who goes in determines that this plant is what is called official action indicated. It's bad and it needs to make corrections immediately. And what the officials do in Maryland is they downgrade that finding. They alter the finding. They make it okay enough to approve. So for six months, Rambaxi, this company saturated in fraud, is the only generic manufacturer of Lipitor. They make $100 million in 24 hours. That's how big this launch was. And about nine months after the launch begins, 
They have to recall millions of the drugs because they have glass fragments in them. Glass fragments in one's Lipitor does not sound like an appealing prospect. It is not appealing. No, it's absolutely it's not a, appealing. And in fact, is a better word. they knew that the plant that was manufacturing this was not okay. We think about just our systems of checks and balances and regulation and how important this is. How much is this a tale of just an outgunned and overwhelmed regulator as well? It's certainly a tale of that. Here's this domestic agency which kind of overnight in this wave of globalization has to become this policeman around the world. And they're totally ill-equipped to do so. Totally right. ill-equipped to do so. And they love to talk about their global regulatory partners, but the Indian regulators basically see themselves as an arm of industry. They're completely hostile to the FDA's findings, and they're facing a mentality where the Indian plant owners are just figuring out how to trick them. So back to Rambaxi, they end up settling with the U.S. government, right? For $500 million. And yet no individuals have to plead guilty. That was a huge issue because that was very much on the table, that they were going to charge the CEO, Malvinder Singh. There were other people in their crosshairs, but only the company pled guilty. I find that such an appalling outcome in so many of these cases that a company is made up of individuals and somehow a company can be guilty without an individual having done anything wrong. It's astonishing and astonishing in, in this case and astonishing that it, that, it, that it happens so often. How inevitable was the exposure of Rambaxi? You write about this document that your whistleblower, Takur, had put together. If it weren't for this document, would anything have happened? I mean, could it be that this mammoth secret could have actually stayed this dark secret that is imperiling lives around the world? Oh, I think it would have. I mean, I think without Dinesh Takur coming forward and without his documents, I have little doubt that Rambaxi would have continued to get away with it. You begin the book with a big picture. You narrow down to the story, this incredibly compelling story of, of Rambaxi, and then you broaden again. Rambaxi is emblematic of a larger problem, right? What I was able to uncover is what the FDA had actually found in India. Because after the Rambaxi story, it became clear to the FDA that they had what's called a data integrity problem in India. Again, that is such a dry phrase for what it actually is. Ta pause on that and talk about what a data integrity problem actually is. Well, well, as one person recently commented online, another word for a data integrity problem is an integrity problem. Basically, data integrity issues means that at these manufacturing plants, they are manipulating or fabricating quality data to make drugs that would not pass FDA standards pass. They're making poor quality drugs look like high quality drugs through manipulation of the testing data. And is the FDA equipped to fix that even today? The FDA has been a contributor to this problem because it announces its inspections weeks and sometimes months in advance. I mean, even with Rambaxi, that company had been under criminal investigation for five years, and the FDA was still giving it two months of advance notice that it was coming to inspect its plant. So what happens? Paint a picture of what happens at, at the plant once the FDA has announced it's coming. The plants send in data fabrication teams. Sometimes it's as many as 20 people. And they will go through, they will 
shred incriminating documents. They will fabricate documents to the extent they're fabricating their own standard operating procedures. Like they have no rules, they invent rules, and then in some cases they will steam these documents overnight in steam rooms to make them look old. I had no idea one could steam a document. (laughs) That actually never occurred to me. You know, it's sort of like, I don't know if your kids have had these colonial arts and crafts projects where they have to make documents look old and they pour coffee on them. Well, in this case, it's apparently more effective to steam them in a room. And then they try to clean and make the plant look as pristine as possible, right? Even though a skilled inspector can see the signs that the pristine is just the surface. Yeah. As one of my sources said, they can make anything look like anything. So you give them a weekend, they've got low cost labor, they can put up a building. But in a number of cases, they would, for example, clean up bird infestations. They will falsify their own sterility data, which show that the plants are sterile because you have to test air, you have to test water, you have to test surfaces to make sure that they're free of microbial contamination. And and just to be clear, these plants are so strictly regulated that in sterile plants where you have to have unidirectional airflow, employees cannot move quickly because that will alter the airflow. So we're talking about these fundamental manipulations to literally depict these plants as sterile when they're not. So now that you've written this, or now that the FDA discovered all these problems, they don't announce their inspections anymore, right? The FDA ran a pilot program in India from 2014 through mid-2015, where they did all of their inspections either unannounced or on short notice. And the rate of serious findings at these plants increased by almost 60%. And you would think, okay, they're going to then make this no-notice inspection, this standard everywhere in the world. Uh Uh-uh. Instead, the FDA canceled this program and went back to pre-announced inspections. I think it's because they have no plan B for our drug supply. We are desperate for these drugs. We have drugs already in shortage. And in every plant where they find these calamitous situations, they have to restrict those drugs from being imported to the U.S. So it comes back to the story of Lipitor in the end, the same reason that the FDA approves generic Lipitor made by Rambaxi as this criminal investigation is nearing its apex, which is the need for this drug to reduce pharmaceutical prices. This really just is the microcosm of this larger issue, which is this overwhelming pressure for cheaper drugs. Yeah. And there's another issue here, which is that the FDA's budget comes from the number of drugs that they approve. So because the generic drug manufacturers pay for the approval process? That's right. They pay user fees. So how do you get a guy like Peter Baker, who's this FDA investigator who really tries to do his job? And what what happens to him in the end? As Peter Baker inspected in India, his notoriety grew to the point that he was followed. He was poisoned with tainted water at these manufacturing plants. On one inspection he was on, they bugged one of the inspector's hotel rooms. He would present manufacturing executives with black and white evidence of data fabrication. They would completely deny it. For example, there was a bathroom where the toilets had no drainage piping. And this was a bathroom that was right off. This is in a manufacturing plant. Yes. And and the bathroom was right off of the sterile manufacturing area. 
So he pointed out the urine is falling on the floor. And the plant executive said to him, well, the stickers above the toilets show that it's under repair. But there were no stickers, which he pointed out. But there are stickers. So it was this through the looking glass experience. And after about 18 months in India dealing with this, and he was threatened, he was physically threatened, he was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress. Does your reporting experience ultimately show a cautionary tale for people like Peter Baker and your whistleblower, Takur, who try to do the right thing? Does it work out for them? Or is this ultimately a cautionary tale for those who try to do good? I think it's a cautionary tale, but I'm not sure that they would do anything differently. As Peter Baker said, American patients deserve good drugs. And he literally felt like he was the last person standing between potentially lethal drugs and the American patient because the drugs were going to leave those plants and go directly to American pharmacies. So these people are just hardwired to do the right thing in the face of incredible pressure to do otherwise. I think so. So you also chronicle in the book, back when the generic drug industry first got started here, there's this mammoth scandal where all these bad things are happening. And then we've got this scandal, Rambaxi, and this evidence that so many manufacturers aren't following the practices they need to. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Are we at fool me three times? There was, as you say, this generic drug scandal of the 1980s in which U.S.-based companies were fabricating data and they were bribing FDA reviewers to approve their drug applications. That got busted up. It was a huge scandal. But now we have sort of a similar thing unfolding. It's just 7,000 miles away. And the FDA is saying the same set of things it did. Everybody can trust their drugs, take them with confidence. Everything is fine. We have not fixed this problem. Do people care enough? Why don't people care more about this issue? I think what's difficult for the consumer in this picture is that there's very limited options. Insurance has basically locked us into getting certain drugs. You know, we go to the pharmacy, we get the drugs we're given. We don't think about who the manufacturer is. We take them. If we have side effects, we don't attribute it to the drugs. You need to know a lot in order to be able to assess your options, to say, wait a second, this manufacturer was accused of data fabrication and got warning letters from the FDA. And so I'd rather not take their drugs. Let me take this other manufacturer. And you need to know that the warning letter isn't just that an I wasn't dotted and a T wasn't crossed, right? It's not just right. a bureaucratic misstep. It actually right. is a, a, a serious thing. What's the way out of this conundrum? Because you wrote a sentence that really stood out to me. With public fury fixed on ever-rising drug prices, the message that the nation's most affordable drugs were compromised was unwelcome. And that's, again, the core of this. What's the way out? There's not one fix. It's a series of fixes. First of all, to state the obvious, the FDA has to do unannounced inspections at every plant they go to around the world. We can't make nice with governments and basically discard the public health of all of the Americans as a result. I mean, we have to step up and be strict in these markets where we're regulating. So that's number one. Number two, we have to regulate brand name drug prices. If those were somewhat more affordable, 
we wouldn't necessarily be forced into the arms of these low-cost manufacturers overseas. We've given ourselves no other option. And yet that second option, despite President Trump's noise about reducing drug prices, has been something that has thwarted every administration for forever, right? Right. I mean, it's just who's going to stand up to the pharmaceutical lobby. I mean, that's a real question. The other thing we need to do is start making our own drugs again. Now, there's there's a couple of interesting things that are happening out there that might be sort of models for a way forward. So there are a couple of nonprofit drug makers that have coalesced around these this issue of shortages and have decided to try to do U.S. manufacturing in a nonprofit model. It's actually fascinating because your book is this larger story, too, of the end of manufacturing in the U.S., right? And what the real cost of globalization or of losing our manufacturing prowess has been. Absolutely. And it's really encouraging to hear that there's a recognition that that needs to change. I think there is a wide recognition, and part of that is because of these drug shortages. If the market is not going to reward, it's not going to reward quality, it's not going to reward the making of these low-cost drugs. We can't afford to do it in the U.S. Maybe there has to be a different model here. Isn't another part of the conundrum here, you write, that it's not that companies in India and China can't manufacture. They know perfectly well how to do it. It's just this cost pressure that good manufacturing, really having a good process, costs more money, 25% more, you, you write. And so how does that ever get any better in a business world that is increasingly driven by bottom-line profit? I'm not sure that it gets better, except to say that regulators have to be more stringent and observe more pressure. And so the downside of getting caught has to be severe enough that it promotes compliance. Unlike in the case of Rambaxi, does it have to be individuals? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you should start sending pharma executives to jail. I think things might improve rather swiftly. <laughs> I think that might do it. On that note, thank you so much for coming. It's been lovely and frightening to talk to you. Thank you so much. What a pleasure to chat with you. So like many people, I take a generic drug, levothyroxine. Over the years, I've read plenty of complaints from people online talking about how the generic version of this medicine can give them unpredictable symptoms and lead to some variability in their results. I've always brushed these complaints off. Until now, I had Catherine take a look at my bottle and she looked at the manufacturing label and said, stop, this is one of the shoddiest manufacturers of this drug. You need to find a different version. So this is an issue that affects all of us. And what's really devastating is that there is no easy solution. Think about the pressures, an overworked outgunned regulator, a push for profits that almost inevitably is going to lead to manufacturing shortcuts globalization and the loss of American manufacturing skills, and ever higher prices for brand name drugs as those manufacturers too seek to extract every dollar they can, thereby leading to more and more demand for generic drugs, despite the obvious problems with the industry. This is not business at its best. Making a Killing is a co-production of Pushkin Industries and Chalk and Blade. It's produced by Ruth Barnes and Rosie Stouffer. My executive producers are Allison McLean, No Relation, and Megan Casey. 
The executive producer at Pushkin is Mia Lobel. Engineering is by Jason Gambrell. Our music is by Jed Flood. Special thanks to Jacob Weisberg at Pushkin and everyone on the show. I'm Bethany McLean. Thanks so much for listening. Find me on Twitter at BethanyMac12 and let me know who you've enjoyed hearing from. <laughs>